Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am your co-host, Andrew, and I can't even begin to tell you how excited I was that this was our movie pick. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I love it so much. Uh, super excited to talk about it today, guys. <laughs> and uh, this is Phil, your other co-host, and where there's light, there's hope. I just made that up. Whoa, very interesting. Uh, well, there's not a, not a, a lot of light in this particular film, uh, which goes by the name of Dark City. Indeed. Uh, it is a film from 1998, directed by Alex Proyas, and it was recommended to us by Drew, the returning champion. Drew, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we're super excited to have you on talking about this movie. As I said before, one of my personal favorites. But before we get to all of that fun stuff... Uh, let's talk about how to find us on the web. You can go to our website, www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com, and there you can find everything posted, all of our um, individual episodes. Uh, you can also leave comments in the comments section, and those comments can be either about the podcast itself, we welcome your feedback, or they can be uh, suggestions of films that you would like us to talk about. Mm-hmm. And if you do suggest a film. We ask that you leave some contact information so we can get in contact with you. Then have you on the show like Drew is today to talk about whatever movie it is that you suggest. Uh, you can do the same thing on Facebook, on our Facebook page, which is in the queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. You can like our page. It'll show up in your news feed. And then you can uh, leave comments there. And it's a little bit easier for us to get in contact with you because of the nature of Facebook, obviously. Mm-hmm. Messaging is built into it, so it becomes a real simple matter for us to reach out to you. Um you can also uh, engage us in conversation on Twitter by searching for at ITQ podcast. That is our handle on Twitter. Uh, we post all of the links to our uh, various different episodes and as well as uh, some other fun uh, stuff on Twitter. You get engage us in conversation there. We'll follow you back if you follow us. And uh, finally, uh, you can uh, find us on iTunes, which is where uh, the sort of, you know, it's the easiest way, I would say, to just get every episode de- delivered directly to mm-hmm. you. You don't have to actually go through a, a website to actually find the material. Indeed. So. You can consume uh, as much of us as you desire. Indeed. As I said, the movie for today is Dark City, an Alex Proyas-directed film from 1998. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating film. Uh, I'll tell you all about it in a second. But before I do that, Drew... Why did you recommend this film for the podcast? Why did you want to talk about it? Well, uh, way back in the last podcast when we were discussing Zardoz, I had suggested we watch oh, yeah. a film called Deep Rising. Uh, around the time we were originally thinking about recording this episode, uh, an Alex Proyas film came to the theaters, Gods of Egypt. Mm. Yes. Uh, mm. So here's the thing. Uh, on my birthday every year, I go to see a movie. It's just mm-hmm. been a tradition for, for 25 years or so. In 1998, my birthday movie was Dark City. Um, Ooh, yes. And I thought, hey, this would be kind of neat to go see an Alex Proyas movie. And then the reviews came in. Um, and I was <laughs> like, wow, okay. I threw out Dark City thinking, well, at least there's you know one or two uh, films of his that some people liked and... and uh, the enthusiasm from the other end, especially from Andrew, was uh, overwhelming. He said, hey, why not? Let's do that. It's, it's certainly a <laughs> film that 
I enjoy watching. I enjoy talking about. I've had many a long conversation about it in the late 90s. And uh, while it's it's been a decade, probably, since I've seen it, um, it was nice to to pull it out of the shelf and and, uh, put it in and watch it because it is a very interesting film. It is. It is that. Uh, Phil, you looked like you were about to say something. Uh, no, I. It's interesting to say the least, and I'm kind of like the the newbie in this conversation because seeing it for this podcast was the very first time that I have seen Dark City, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about it, and it's you'll be getting the the fresh perspective from my end of this conversation, and then I'm, you'll be the everyone else will be getting the seasoned pro uh, perspective from you two, certainly. Certainly. Well, I mean, I have seen this film no fewer than, I think, 10 or 12 times. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a movie that I have watched over and over again. I've watched the theatrical cut. I've also watched the director's cut several times. Uh, I have watched the audio commentaries. There's three on the DVD. There's one with Alex Proyas, the director. There's one with Roger Ebert, mm-hmm. the great film critic. Uh, and then there's one with the writers. Uh, and it is... Uh, <laughs> it is... It, it it was a movie that actually for me uh, legitimized in my mind in my young mind Roger Ebert as a film critic. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I always enjoyed watching Siskel and Ebert and and watching all of that kind of stuff. But then when this movie came out and I went to see it in the theaters, I was totally blown away by it. I just thought it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. I thought it was such a, a unique vision, and uh, and it, and and other people didn't seem to be feeling that at all. And when I read his review of it and then saw that he did a, a commentary track on it, uh, it, it, it blew my mind. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy thinks the same way I do about this film. So, uh, yeah, I was I was sold on Mr. Ebert as a result of this movie. Well, let's give, give the listeners a taste out there of the plot of Dark City so that we can all sort of, of course, be on the same page. Of course. Uh, Dark City, it's it's a it's a, a film shrouded in mystery, um, as you might imagine from a film with a, a title like Dark City. Um, essentially, uh, a man by the name of John Murdoch wakes up naked in a tub in a hotel room, uh, and there is a dead woman in the room. He receives a phone call from a mysterious man by the name of Dr. Schraber, who uh, tells him that he needs to get out of there as quickly as possible because they're coming for him. Uh, he is immediately pursued by a group of uh, men in long black trench coats and fedoras mm-hmm. who are ghastly pale. And uh, things uh, become very supernatural uh, as the film progresses. I don't want to spoil too much, although we'll probably end up getting into some spoilers when talking about this film. But uh, as the film progresses, the um, it becomes... Uh, very apparent that this is a world that they're living in where there is no day. It, it is a dark, it is a dark city. Indeed. <laughs> it is always night. And it is in this kind of like sort of fifties styled, almost sort of Edward Hopper esque kind of, uh, world that they're, they're existing in. And, uh, uh, it, it's strange because people seem to be falling asleep at odd times, the city seems to be changing. People don't have their memories. Uh, people seem to be different people from the people that they thought they were. All kinds of unusual things happen. And 
simultaneously, there's a man by the name of Bubs, Bumstead, who is a, a detective, who is trying to solve the mystery of this uh, person who's been killing a bunch of prostitutes around the city. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this person appears to be John Murdoch, but John Murdoch has no memory of his past. He has no memory of, he only has flashes of, of his childhood and memories from a long time ago, but he can't seem to piece it all together. And piecing it together is the crux of the film because as he starts to piece it together, we see how sort of massively convoluted the, the plot is that is, uh, that is going on. This is very much a search for identity film. Mm, yes, uh, yes it is. You know, and if you need to go parse it slightly further, it's a you're looking for a genre. It's definitely a science fiction film noir, or even maybe science fantasy mm. film noir search for yes. identity. Yeah, it, very much. I felt the the noir influence as well. I mean, and, and the uh, the main character uh, he he has a hard time sleeping, um, mm-hmm. and that's a very typical kind of noir problem for a, an antihero or hero to have where he can't even be afforded the basic comfort that everybody else in the world has to be able to recharge your batteries and rest and get some peace. There's no peace for this main character. And um, mm-hmm. he, I saw uh, a few examples of of influences in Dark City of previous movies that I saw. I, I mean, like the, the idea of a killer of prostitutes is something that I've, that I've heard of in other films. But what I've seen more is how this movie influenced so many other movies that I've seen since 1998. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've got, you know, influencing Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, Memento. There's some flashes of, of Requiem for a Dream in there even. And this is such a visionary movie. It's one of those visionary movies I've ever seen. And yeah. it is like, it was almost overwhelming. And the, the pace of this version, I saw the, the theatrical theatrical cut, not the director's cut. But mm-hmm. the theatrical cut is so swift. And everything it's, moves yeah, relentless. so quickly. And yeah. it's just dazzling how scenes will begin and end. And new scenes will happen, and you're, there's a constant barrage of visual information and and style, and uh, it's there's a lot to parse through. And I don't know how much parsing you guys want to do here, but uh, <laughs> but what I, I will also, I will end by saying that this movie is not a confusing mess, which it could have been. Yeah, and I feel like my description might have been a confusing mess. So. Well, well, it's hard to describe this movie and. and and not reveal too much. Yeah. But but it is it is like a I just, it's like a balls out vision of a film like I've never seen and it's it's quite interesting to to look at and absorb. Let me ask you guys this. Do you yeah. remember a Nintendo Entertainment System video game called Deja Vu? Mm, no. Okay. I don't think so. All right. I don't think so. Uh, I remember the name of the game, but I don't know if I ever played it. Deja Vu begins, you, uh, it's a point of view game where you wake up, you don't know who you are, there's a body in the room, and you have mm. to slowly um, find, find out. There's a, there's a syringe also in the room, and you've lost your wow. memory. You've been strapped to a chair. Um, it's, what, what, know, what version of Nintendo was this? It came out originally for the Mac. Um, and then oh. as a computer game, and then it came out in 1990 
for the Nintendo, the NES, the original Nintendo system. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, it, this movie, when I first saw it, the first thing I thought was, oh my god, the guy who did The Crow <laughs> is doing Deja Vu. Uh, yeah. As, uh, yeah. As if he was the director from City of Lost Children. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really there you go. There's another influence. And that's the interesting thing is you mentioned movies that have taken influence uh, have been influenced by Dark City, and I think uh, Alex Proyas must have seen City of Lost Children, which came out uh, about three years before, at least in the right. states. So I remember watching it yeah, in '96. Yeah. Um, so. yeah. Well, I mean, this is this was a time when there were some very visionary filmmakers sort of making movies. I mean, The Crow was a movie that me and my group of friends were obsessed with when we were in high school uh we just thought it was the greatest thing ever mm-hmm. and we had watched it a million times and so when this movie came out we were really amped up to go see it and see what the you know the creator of this visionary masterpiece the crow had had uh had you know cooked up for us and it, it surpassed my expectations so much i mean you go back and you watch the crow now and it seems very dated and kind of uh you know of a time and place even though it's still a lot of fun you watch Dark City now, and it is just as vibrant as the day that I saw it. Yeah. Um, I also yeah. think that another one of Andrew's favorite films, Brazil, was an influence on this yeah, film. Yeah, for sure. Definitely, yeah, definitely there's two. There's something. Yeah, I like, about, I like these kind of movies. <laughs> well, there's a there's a visual depth to this. There's always something going on, and you could, uh, I think, Phil, you were mentioning that there's there's a lot of cuts. When I was, you know, nineteen. Uh, when this film came out, no, Mm -hmm. 20, 21. And when this film came out, you know, I I was staying up late and having a lot of caffeine. I don't think I noticed how many edits were in this. And now that I'm an old man, (laughs) uh, I'm like, wow, this, every frame, there's like a frame change every three or four seconds in this. And yeah, you know, when I went to good static shot, you know, I'm, I'm from the Kubrick school. I really like a, a nice held shot almost a theatrical feel to it. And this, but what's impressive about it is unlike the modern action films where they go shaky cam as soon as you get into a fight sequence to make it Mm -hmm. kill that kind of fight or flight in the audience, the cuts do not diminish the storytelling. The pacing Mm -hmm. is actually Mm -hmm. still very slow and determined. And the plot, you know, it, it builds along with the plot. But the visuals change so frantically, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's an, a really interesting juxtaposition between the two because it works. It works very well. It does. It does. It works incredibly well. And it's not, um, you know, I mean, I've I've railed against the kind of manic editing of, of modern films before. When you watch something like a, a Michael Bay film, there, I mean, there's method to that madness as well. But it's just, it, it's, uh, it seems as though the editing is almost in service of... Uh, inundating the viewer with visual information so that they won't pay attention to the fact that there's not anything of substance there. <laughs> right. <laughs> or at least not, not yet in the story they, you know, they're still kind of, there's still, the viewer is still in that mode of gathering information for a good, what were like 45 minutes? Would you say? Oh, you're, I mean, you're saying in this film, in this film. Yeah. I was, I was saying in like a Michael Bay film, it's just, it's just to distract from right. 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 People, people, they're not being any substance in this film. It's actually, I think it makes a lot of sense throughout, but especially early in the film, because John Murdoch 
is confused and doesn't know what's going on. And so this sort of frenetic pace that the film takes on actually puts the audience in the same frame of mind. Right. You know, it puts you in a, in a place where you're disoriented and you don't really know what's going on and you're only getting snippets of information here and there and you're seeing images and motifs that repeat throughout the film in different ways just for a split second. But then the next time you see it, your brain has this sort of pattern recognition and, and realizes that you, oh, I've seen this somewhere before. It is, it's so masterful in the way that it creates, it puts you inside John Murdoch's head. It's actually, it's, uh, it's quite subliminal, actually, the way that they yeah. sort of kind of get you into the story and get you into into the key symbols of, of you know, of like the, the watch face, you know, time. Watch face. Um, and there's that running motif about Shell Beach. Like Shell Beach is like the Shangri-La of, yeah. of the people who live at, in Dark City. And everybody knows that it's there, but nobody can nobody tell can you how remember. to get there. <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. and it becomes kind of like this sort of, uh, you know, a mythically proportioned place that actually comes back in the end of the film as being a major plot point. Yeah, and and the, even that that motif that you mentioned, like the clock face, isn't just a clock face. Even though that time is important in this film, mm-hmm. the clock face is also a circular motif, which is repeated. The circles are repeated over and over again in this film. The Fibonacci spirals that uh, uh, Walensky draws all over his walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in the director's cut, there's a moment when. Um, uh, John Murdoch is staring at his fingerprints, and his fingerprints are a Fibonacci spiral. And, and it's also they don't, the, it's, the the carving on the dead prostitute too. The carving on the dead prostitutes. It's the shape of the city itself. Yeah. It's the shape of Doctor Schraber's uh, lab. It's the the shape of the pool where the the strangers find Doctor Schraber. It's you know it's the shape of the maze that he puts the rat in, and then the rat, of course, is the people who are being experimented on. Oh, oh God, it's so good. <laughs> it's also the shape of the plot too, and that's the important thing. It is, thing. yeah. It is. It is something where we are given just enough to circle, have an idea of what's going on, and as the movie progresses towards its ending, we are moving towards the inner workings of the plot itself, and mm-hmm. then it comes back out and becomes grander. You know, you start off with something. We start with uh, the tabula rasa. Yeah. And as we gain information, we feel like we have, um, we're, we're reaching a climax. You think you know what's going on. And then the plot comes from the center and kind of explodes outwards. It becomes, I don't want to say a different film, but it, it certainly becomes um, more more layered. I actually, Indeed. I debated uh, before we actually were watching this movie um whether or not to see the director's cut or the theatrical cut. And um, I got actually advice from Andrew to see the theatrical cut instead, just for the first time. And what I was reading about it is that people who are critical of the theatrical cut say that there's a prologue at the very beginning, a spoken prologue Mm -hmm. by uh, Dr. Dr. Schraber. Um, And um, they said the, the comments that I was reading said that this prologue will spoil some of the surprises that happen later in the film. But his prologue is rather general, and I found... And cryptic. Yeah, almost. and I found... I mean, well, when, when the actual you know, surprise did come, then I could recall, oh yeah, this is what they alluded to in the beginning. But it was not at all a... a it didn't ruin the experience or the delight of having that surprise. I think that yeah. commentary comes with um, hindsight. 
I think if yeah, you if yeah. you listen to it, it, it didn't spoil it for me. But knowing how the movie ends, watching mm-hmm. the theatrical trailer, I, I don't watch the theatrical trailer anymore, uh, a movie anymore. I, I watch the director's cut whenever I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I, I was working at Blockbuster when this this film came out, and mm-hmm. I probably watched this movie every night for a week or two. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah because I was converting it to a role-playing game that I was going to throw my players at. And so I, oh, I, I was wow. breaking it down into into chunks. And it, it, it never really worked out, but it, it definitely had this feel of the way that kind of meta-narrative from the the early or late 90s we were finding in, in, in role-playing games, comic books, and which is not surprising mm-hmm. considering that, you know, the the uh, one of the writers of this film... Um, David Goyer. David S. Goyer, is yeah. the guy who wrote pretty much every comic movie. I mean, like, he's, he's Including got his... the most recent debacle that is Batman versus Superman. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he he was doing it. He he essentially wrote the script for the first the first of the modern comic films, which was Blade. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. once mm-hmm. you, you move away from the the early Superman, Batman, and, of course, Swamp Thing movies... Um, the kind of the new renaissance of of these films david gore has his he's got his he's got his fingerprints all over over that his little so, fibonacci spiral fingerprints all yeah over and that was um, actually planned by alex Perez that that yes it would be that yeah. you know, years in the future from now david s Goyer would have that pattern yeah yeah <laughs> um we're dealing with the full-scale psychopath here guys <laughs> Yay! I wanted to talk. <laughs> Yay! I wanted to talk for a minute about the the, the sort of key performances in this film because I love them all. Um, John Murdoch is played by Rufus Sewell, who's uh, mostly f- familiar to people f- uh, for a lot of period pieces that he did in the late '90s and the early 2000s, mm-hmm. um, I, or a number of them at least. Uh, he's played a bad guy in a number of movies um, that uh, people, you know, recognize him for being. The, you know, very different than he is in this film, basically. Yeah. Um, he, he gives a very distinctive in, performance in this film that is sort of unlike anything else I've ever seen him do. And uh, I think he's just great. Um, Detective Bumstead is played by William Hurt. One of my favorite uh, actors. One of your favorite actors and in a great performance in this film. Uh, very nuanced and very, uh, very progressively aware in a really like wonderful way like his progressively aware but i want to just add another tenet of the uh the film noir genre is to have an an authority figure who is out of their depth and they don't really know what's going on and they're kind of as even more clueless than the hero is and and eventually in this film bumstead kind of wakes up but um but it's a good role for her yeah, it's a really great role for her. Uh, Jennifer Connelly uh, is in this film uh, in another fantastic performance uh, in her stable of many fantastic performances. She plays Emma Murdoch, which is John Murdoch's wife. Um, Richard O'Brien plays the sort of uh, big stranger. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't know that it was him from Rocky Horror Picture Show. It is. Yeah. It, it's Riff Raff from Rocky Horror. <laughs> it's awesome. It's astounding. Yeah. Oh, man. Time is fleeting. Ooh, hey, so many things work for this film. Fibonacci circle again, anyone? <laughs> oh, my God. We're all in the maze. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the performances in this are, are perfectly attuned 
in tune with the the film itself. I think that everybody, you know, everybody's playing this kind of sleepy confusion, this kind of haze of like half memories, not really knowing what's going on, discovering it as they as they go along and working their way towards self-determination and and uh, freedom mm-hmm. of thought at, at the very least. Right? Or away from it, too, I think could be argued. Um, that could be and, argued and as well, yeah. You also neglected to mention um, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, Kiefer Sutherland, of course, and yeah, it's Dr. Schraber, yes. Very uh, key very role key. in this film. Very, um, very manic performance by Kiefer Sutherland. And when really I was younger, I resembled Kiefer Sutherland quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> I maybe even fashioned some of my fashion sense on his character from the Lost Boys. Oh, um, yeah. And when yeah. this film came out, uh, I started parting my hair and talking in a, a very <laughs> creepy voice, <laughs> freaking out my girlfriend. Um, anyway, so <laughs> this is okay. I'm, I'm going to say this, Andrew. You're not going to like this. Uh oh. I'm not a huge fan of Rufus Sewell in this film. Really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, really. This is the first time I saw him. I've seen oh. him parts that I liked better. And I found him distracting. And Interesting. even years later that I've seen the the breadth of his acting ability, I still found him mildly distracting in this film. Interesting. What is it about his performance now, that, that is so distracting for you? I'm not a percent certain part of it is when i watch a movie and i don't like it or even if i like it i want i play this game where i i go who would i recast in this role Mm -hmm. um and i have since 1998 wondered who working at that time would i have recast in this role and i don't have a good answer for you there is something that possibly what i find off-putting about the character is actually a strength in his performance uh, mm-hmm. that maybe the way he w- goes about reacting to the situations or delivering his lines or the looks he gives, maybe that is intentional because this is a this is a very nuanced film as far as acting is concerned because it's nuanced in a very subdued form. And perhaps mm-hmm. it's Mur- uh, Sewell as Murdoch being far more manic and frenetic in his performances than everybody else, maybe that's what sets it apart. Maybe what I find to be a, a weakness is actually a strength, and, and that's probably what it is. But Well, well I would... Yeah, Phil. Okay, I was just going to say, yeah, he, he is the, the most manic character because he is the one with the burden that he has to live with. He's, he's the one who is trying to figure out what's going on, and he also, uh, as we learn fairly early in the film, does possess this gift to tune, which is a, an ability that um, no other Psych- human has. Psychic ability, yeah. Yeah, and so he is he's basically dealing with a lot. And it kind of reminds me of ordinary people, oddly enough, because <laughs> um, when we first see Timothy Hutton's character, before we really know anything about his situation in that film... Uh, he is clearly uh, suffering. He is yes, he, yeah. he is completely out of step with all of his friends. He is uh, strangely he has strange mannerisms, strange tics, and we later learn that it was because he's dealing with a lot of guilt at the death of his older brother, who was uh, more well liked by his mother than he was. 
Mm-hmm. And um and I feel like Rufus Sewell is he's just carrying a lot of pain and it makes sense to me that he's going to be out of step with other people because he is got this tremendous, you know, kind of uh crisis going on within him at all times. Well, and not just the the crisis and the and the burden of the of the knowledge or the or the the discovery of what's going on, but the fact that he's also he wakes up naked in a bathtub with a with blood coming out of his forehead. Dude, that's like a Monday is, for me. What? And <laughs> and is immediately pursued by two creepy men and one terrifying child <laughs> in in trench coats and and fedoras who were dressed all in black and whose skin is pale white. Like and that never lets up. He's never not being pursued by them. So everything is is panic for him because he's it's it's sort of that, you know, fight or flight response you know Mm -hmm. and Um, it's character i mean it's it's perfect characterization and i think if you look at the script of this the way he acts is completely understandable on a script i don't think the fault lies in um for me the behavior it's just the actor it's it's there's something about rufus sewell that throws me and i'm not sure what I, it is is it is it his lazy eye is that what messes you up no because everyone has a lazy <laughs> eye in this film or at least the, of, of, our, of our of our four main characters or well five main characters at least two of them have something going on <laughs> with the same eye um it's true it's true. um and this is of course i i keep your southern i assume is a person I don't know if you have a prosthetic lazy eye, but, and I don't think it's, it's, it's yeah, Sewell's yeah. lazy eye. And I, and I don't think it's, it's that at all. Um, I, I've no, never been able to understand my what you're saying though. Finger yeah, it's, it's something about his performance that, that doesn't rub you the right way. And that's, you know, that's fair. I'd like to just briefly talk about how brilliant the very opening scene is with the goldfish. Um, oh, so great. Because in the same way that people don't like the opening narration for the theatrical mm-hmm. release. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Bumstead's commentary on the goldfish because I feel like it's so <laughs> obvious. So you have this man who wakes up naked in a bathtub. There is a bloody knife. He's got blood on his forehead. There's a dead body in the next room, and he knocks over this bowl that has a goldfish in it. Um, mm-hmm. And he picks up the goldfish and puts it in the tub. And that is such a momentous character not development but it tells you so much about his character that I don't need to be told that someone who does something like that isn't mm-hmm. a killer you know um, fair enough I think that's a, a pretty minor <laughs> quibble though. oh no it's not a quibble I'm just saying that I I really like that scene like I really love oh, yeah, how, yeah. how we're shown but not told. And then yes. the telling of it feels like a little artificial. Well, it's just that, that you don't can't trust your audience to um to figure things out. Like if this were a French film, I don't mm-hmm. think the line explaining the goldfish would be in it. You know? I mean, I it's it's not right. me but knocking it, the film. Doesn't it sort of go well with that totally awesome shot of the camera like in the water like looking up at Bumstead with the fish swimming by like I mean visually it's pretty wicked you have to admit. Oh it's, it's very cool and I was actually surprised um, that he didn't put it in the, I mean it, it feels like he should be putting it in the toilet for some reason the the narrowness I, of the yeah. field of camera makes it look like it's, it's going in the toilet. 
it's funny because uh, in the Roger Ebert commentary, he actually makes a comment about that where he says, I'm assuming that he put it in the toilet in the beginning because, of course, when John Murdoch wakes up, he's in soapy water. Right. And when we see the shot from inside the water, it's very clear water. He's like, so it's in the toilet, but then they find it in the bathtub and it's not soapy water anymore. Well, clearly. <laughs> he actually deals directly with I that. mean, the fish can tune, obviously. Right. <laughs> it tuned itself into the bathtub and cleaned the water afterwards. Yeah, that fish is the John Murdoch of goldfish. Yeah. We haven't drawn a very logical um, comparison between this and a movie that came out the following year, which is The Matrix. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, they, yeah. If The Matrix had come out two or even three years after this film, I would have said that they basically just ripped this movie off entirely. Um, yeah aesthetically storytelling wise the spirit of the matrix is actually very much in it which is um yeah. a search for identity um unknown surroundings and then uh, a realization of self that allows yep. you to affect your surroundings both yes. of those are that you know if you basically describe that you're describing a lot of different movies but the fact that both of these movies and then actually the following year or the year before 13th floor mm -hmm. you know there it, it feels like there was just something in the water uh yeah that allowed yeah, people were thinking concurrently yeah almost a almost a buddhist um sense in 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 that that mm -hmm. quality yeah. interestingly in um dark city it's it's not so much like a, a story where one special man learns to use his powers. I mean, he does use his powers ultimately in, in the climax of the film in a very special way, but it's more like, it's more noir than the matrix. It's more about kind of like, and also it also helps that the setting too is kind of pseudo 1950s Edward Hopper, uh, urban environment. Um, it's like, it's not a story about how can I learn how to tune better? You know, I've got to be the best tuner in the, in dark city. It's more about him trying to solve this, human scale mystery and he happens to have this uh superhuman ability that he can use at key moments um, well, i would say that that also describes the matrix pretty well <laughs> well i haven't but, seen but, the matrix and, since it came out so maybe i'm wrong wow and, and, and phil's phil's right on that too because what makes this a really incredible script and um you know visually you turn the sound off and just yes. watch this film and be very impressed, especially in uh, today with the special effects that we have. People are not putting out movies like this. Um, yes. And I imagine that any kid with a cell phone or, you know, could probably recreate most of these special effects now. But a lot of mm -hmm. what we see in 1998 hadn't really been pulled out. We hadn't really seen it on the screen. And that's what's impressive about it. We've seen it in art. You know, static images. There's there's a lot going on here that feels like it. I came out of a German expressionist um, exhibit at yeah. a museum, and they, they well, threw I mean, it on. I mean, bringing up that term, I mean, Fritz Lang's right fingerprints yeah, are so all over this. There's so much Metropolis in this. There's so much Metropolis. So much M. M. I would say M. Especially. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh uh, yes. Yeah, I, I think that. Um, the special effects, the style of special effects are fairly practical. And this is not a time when CGI was that commonplace. And all those shots of like the buildings 
morphing and and, and like inflating um, when things are being changed by the ones who tune. I, I think a lot of it holds up because they didn't do the kind of uh, you know uh, early fetal version of CGI, which dates so poorly. Um, a yeah. lot of the special effects they still hold up for me because they're they're they seemed more more uh, like a uh, tangible or or yeah. more and tactile. they're well integrated and and there's a lot of practical effects in it too. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things that happen are are in fact practical effects. Um, it's really cool. I wanted to mention one more thing about this film, and that is the the nature of the creatures in this film, right? The nature of the quote unquote enemy in this film. Mm-hmm. Is uh, as I was watching, I was rewatching it just just before we actually started this podcast. I was rewatching the Roger Ebert commentary because it's so good mm-hmm. for this movie, and he talks about the fact that in this film, the creatures themselves, the others, as they are referred to, strangers, uh, the strangers. I'm sorry, as they are referred to, uh, are uh, in fact not here to eliminate. Mankind. They're not here to kill us. They're not here to destroy human beings. They're here to study and to learn and to save themselves. So in a way, they're actually benign creatures in terms of like the 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 existence of humanity. But uh, but of course, their approach is anything but benign. As you know, yeah. as you watch the film, they come on a little too strong. Well, see, I have it in my notes here. I was going to ask you. Um, do we, we, we find the antagonists of these films sympathetic and the film itself does not portray them as such overtly, but yeah, as you reflect on it, once you know what's going on, there's, there's a philosophy to this film and you can go back and actually see the parallels between the strangers and the the population of dark city and say, um, Kiefer Sutherland's character and the rat, you know, um, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. understand something that is alien to you when they, if you see how they go about with their experiment, they're not particular, they're not vivisecting people, not physically. They're Mm -hmm. doing it emotionally and spiritually. And it's, it's, it's almost like psychoanalysis, uh, Again, like using the Matrix, you would say you're like putting them in a different environment. That the fact that they can reprogram humans' memories, and this goes mm-hmm. to, uh, I, we're spoiling all sorts of stuff, but this goes into very much <laughs> the subtlety of the performances, where you yep. look at the way people act in this, particularly Hurt. What I love about yes. Hurt's character is, Hurt looks at the world and slowly unfolds his his knowledge of what's going on which means that his character his actual character was intelligent logical and um intuitive regardless of what his memories are yes if you look at his character and and he's not the only one that you can kind of see that every character regards of what where their memories are stored there's something integral to their personalities that comes through. If, all right, uh, <laughs> I, wa- I walked out of this film really angry. And I oh. walked out of this film really angry because I felt like there was an amazing idea here for a television series that had huh. to be curtailed 
in a 90-minute film. So I want you. I just want to pitch <laughs> this idea to you. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah, go for it. We follow Walensky, right? The, the, the television series just follows Walensky. We assume it's the 1950s. The first episode totally feels like a period piece. The second yeah. episode feels like a period piece up until like halfway through and there's something off. Right. And as Walensky and the world around him, he starts working it out, the spirals start to turn inwards. And it, the yeah, yeah. series ends with Walensky going nuts. Like, that's the thing. Is, the <laughs> so audience, it's, you know, it's like a Dark City firewalk with me, then. <laughs> My notes for this is um, Twin Peaks meets, and I haven't seen True Detective, but from what I've heard people describing as the kind of uh-huh. unwinding uh-huh. of things getting really, really weird. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think the the potential for this, like, end of series one, you suddenly realize this is not a detective show. This is a science fantasy show. Um, then mm-hmm. you can go into series two and you can kind of kind of build up to the beginning of um, Murdoch being found on the top. Like I could see it going 10 episodes sure. leading up. to Sure. Three. Sure. I love well, it. This, I this love is it. a rich uh, source of material for something like that. I mean, I feel like there's a whole there's a million stories in eight million stories rather in the dark city, in the dark city. In the dark city. <laughs> I knew where you were going yeah. with that one. <laughs> Can I ask you guys, uh, Phil, did you like this film? Yes, of course. I liked it a lot. And I'll probably revisit it someday, but I'm not burning to you know, watch it again. But I am curious about the, the Roger Ebert commentary. I think I could probably learn a lot from it, actually. Um, I, 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 I highly either, recommend it. So I'd like to listen to it. I, so let me ask you this, guys. Why don't you think it – because this was a, a commercial bomb. This did yeah, really, really poorly – why do you think it's why do you too, think it it's too demanding of its viewers i feel it's too demanding to sort of to think uh conceptually about things and 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 this is not an escapist fantasy film this is like a nightmare fantasy film and i think when people want to watch science fiction or at least maybe not in the, it's maybe it's a little bit different when the case of the matrix but most science fiction people want to be able to escape into it and and not have to worry about juggling too much terminology or situations yeah i think that that's that's part of it um but even before that i don't think that uh i think people didn't understand what it was um the trailer for this film happens to be one of my favorite trailers of all time i mean i think it's just one of the best trailers i've ever seen i highly recommend watching it well probably we can post it on uh on our, our Facebook page if you if you listeners want to check it out. But uh, the trailer is just a series of images. It, it There's no dialogue. It tells you nothing. There's no voiceover, nothing. You just see the images from the film, and it's such an arresting array of images. But they are, they're also hard to understand, right, because there's all this 50s motif stuff and these creepy guys and trench coats and, like, weird things happening. None of it makes any sense. Uh and I think that people just didn't get a sense of the film when it came out. Mm-hmm. And so the people who went to see it were generally people who were either just curious or people who were fans of Alex Broyas' previous work with The Crow. Um, and, and it wasn't, yeah. Or, or they were Roger Ebert. <laughs> or they were Roger yeah. Ebert. Um, and 
I think that people just didn't quite know what to think of it. And even now, I mean, I literally watched this movie just a couple of months ago because I had a couple of friends over and I was like, you have to watch this amazing movie. It's one of my favorite films. Let's sit down and watch it. And so I watched it with a group of friends and they were not, they, they weren't head over heels about it. Like I was, Mm -hmm. I mean, they were kind of like, well, that was interesting. I'm like, no, but don't you see, don't you see there's so much to this. It's like an onion. You just keep peeling. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's it's one of those things where uh, if you look away for a second, like you, you're missing a big part of it. Mm. And I think that I think that, you know, especially the way people watch films nowadays, uh, you know, with distractions and with their phones in hand and, you know, doing anything but just like zeroing in on the film. I think it would be easy to sort of get lost and not appreciate the depth of this film. Um, so that's part of it. Cinematic archaeology to this film that you really do have yeah. to kind of dig it, uh, dig into it and uh, mm-hmm. to appreciate them. So. Yeah. But I think uh, as you, I mean, I basically said it in my opening, this is one of my favorite films. I think it's an extraordinary film. I love it. Top to bottom. So happy that you, like you suggested it completely, you know, I mean, I, I, I talked about it, but you suggested it. Uh, and I was so happy that you did, um, got to watch it again, which I always love to do. Um, and I, I recommend it to everybody out there. I think it's an underappreciated, uh, gem of science fiction. I think in coming decades, people will look back on it fondly and talk about it as a very, very good and influential, uh, science fiction film. We just maybe haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Yeah. So that is our podcast on Dark City. Drew, thank you so much for suggesting this. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's it's great to talk to you about movies. So uh, Whenever yeah. Drew requests a movie and he's going to be on the show, you know it's going to be a weird cult classic. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's always fun to to revisit those or see them for the first time or see them for the first time like with me and buckaroo or zardoz for that matter <laughs> buckaroo is coming out with a uh, august 16th it's coming out with a blu-ray with a uh, all new commentary and special features very oh, goodness excited. gracious <laughs> i would imagine i would imagine um uh, again thank you so much drew uh, uh and we uh in our next episode uh we will be talking about high rise High rise. That's, that's right. <laughs> how how could I forget that? It was I who was who promoted it as the oh, thing that we should. Oh, the irony. I know. Uh, High rise. The new uh, Ben Wheatley film. The guy who created the much lauded uh, horror horror film, quote unquote, Kill List, mm. uh, which people have uh, talked about a great deal in the last several years. Uh, Tom Hiddleston is the star of this movie, and Elizabeth Moss mm. of Mad Men oh, fame. Oh, her, yeah. Yeah, she's great. And uh, it looks to be a very interesting film. So we hope you will join us for that and we'll catch you then.